0: You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience.
1: Hey guys, um, thanks for joining us today on this podcast. I just wanted to go through and just explain our goal of the Business Unusual podcast and, and really what we're trying to achieve at TopCo. We're looking at helping organizations within South Africa and, and seeing how we can grow and do more business. And the way that we see that we can do that is by putting in touch with with those organizations that are shooting the lights out, those organizations that are blowing up their sales through their customer service, through innovation. What we've decided to do is to obviously, you know, share these insights these, these critical interviews of these business leaders from Africa and around the world. And, and we do that through the podcast, through our newsletter, and through our summits and awards. You know, for us, we're about introducing you to a trusted network. Of great companies in Africa, so guys, go to the platform, look it up. There's some great podcasts, there's some newsletters that you should be part of, but there's also some great events that you should either be looking to get involved in, and and uh, if you're needing help being introduced to someone, hit me up. Thanks, guys. Uh, w- welcome everybody to this uh, edition of Topco Business Unusual podcast. Today I'm joined by the awesome um, Mr. Lincoln Marley, who's the chairman of Diners Club South Africa. He's been with Stanamet for 19 years. We're just wondering if he got his blue check or not. Um, so it's a real pleasure to have uh, this inspiration. Um, I don't know, are you the most liked guy in Standard Bank or in banking? I'm not sure. <laughs> no, no, no.
0: no. <laughs> I think it's just because I've been there for so long and I know so many people.
1: But it's weird. I mean, if you do research, you see all these graduation speeches you do at Standard Bank and then these are massive... I mean, it goes back quite a few years that you've been doing these. And so you must have had a
0: massive impact
1: very early on to engage with the, the,
0: these youth. Yeah, my, my passion is growing young people. So any opportunity I get in the bank to do anything with young people, whether it's talking to them, motivating them, um, you know, choosing some of the graduate uh, uh, graduates for the graduate program, any of those give me an opportunity to engage with young people and influence their lives as much as I can.
1: And I mean, it's, it's I think it's interesting because there's a lot of people who have passion for young people and giving back but there's another whole element where they're accepting and like i see pictures and i see like i saw you one last year and the comments and the comments and and the, the, it's they actually become your fan club it's it's more than just you giving back it's like they have taken you on as as their mentor in a way i've it is unusual i don't think i've ever seen that before and so I, I, I wonder, what is that? What's that connection?
0: Is that from your upbringing? Yeah, it's a combination. I think um, I was one of those young people before. And there were people who took notice and overlooked some of the rougher parts of my character and approach and saw something uh, you know important for me in who can guide somebody young into something different and something positive. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that when you do interact with young people, it's so important to immerse yourself into their world and try and understand where they are coming from and try and relate to them from where they are. And the third one is it mustn't be a task. It mustn't be something you are assigned to do. They will feel if you're just doing it to tick the box but if you are there full on you start to develop very deep relationships with people now if i think back over the 19 years there are now so many people i have interacted with some of them have left the bank they run their own businesses some of them you know have got prominent roles in different spheres of society but they always go back to those first interactions how do you interact with people when you first meet them? And you see people and not look through them. So I find um, you know quite a lot of inspiration, a lot of ideas as well from young people by just listening without judging and just understanding what they bring into a conversation.
1: You're mentioning so, so many important things, not judging, listening, being there, I want to get into that, but before maybe for those people who are listening, maybe just to go back, because it's it's also, is there an alignment to being a certain way and doing things and then seeing it within others and therefore not having that judgment because you are like that? So I don't know if you want to quickly go back to to that moment in your youth where, you know, you, you, that reflection point changed you where you were on a path and then that sort of changed. Do you want to go into yeah. that a little bit?
0: Yeah, so so I think when we were young, we were very angry, uh, and we were against the apartheid system, and we wanted to bring South Africa to a standstill and make uh, apartheid ungovernable. So we were surrounded by violence, we were surrounded by activism, and all we could see in front of us was this enemy that must be brought down. And my father intervened in, in a very uncanny way. He didn't directly confront us and challenge us and dismiss our ideas. He just challenged us to think of things very differently. And he said, if we're bold enough to take on the might of the army, if we're courageous enough to take on the police, could we not also take on the challenge of our studies? Uh, the way we behave, the way we dress, the way we speak, the way we appear. And he kind of molded us into that. I mean, obviously the first few months were very robust conversations between me and him. And he started doing the same thing also with my friends. And as a group, we started to see this and it was only him, there were other uh, very similar people who were starting to engage with us. Their intervention made a big difference in our lives that we could see beyond what we see now. And we see what future we were trying to create and how we needed to prepare ourselves for that very future. And if I think about it today, those lessons were, before you want to change the world, change yourself. Before you want to persuade everybody else, persuade yourself. And before you you want to have an impact on the world, also have an impact on yourself. And that changed us a lot. And if I think of that group of friends, we've been friends now for more than 30 years. We still challenge one another on the same values and have remained very close as friends. And none of us has been, um, you know, caught in all of the negative things that we've seen other people get through because we're able to challenge one another. And that's important, but it's the how that challenge comes around.
1: I mean, how old were you then? Like 17 16. Uh, seventeen
0: at the time so at 17 we we were very actively involved in student activism and at 18 i'd been expelled from school i was in and out of jail we were given a charge and so we were appearing in court on a bogus charge and we were running away from the police and we wanted to flee the country so that was the environment we were in but through that environment my dad and others were not interested in our background, not interested in our circumstances. They were trying to point us to what the future held and trying to mold us into future leaders and future uh, you know, parents and, and husbands and, 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 and wives uh, that we could be.
1: Do you think there's any parallels between the youth or 16, 17 year olds now in South Africa? Um, and what you went through, I know apartheid is completely different to what we're going through. We, you know, we have democracy. But do you think that the youth are wanting to change things for a future, for a better future themselves, and and maybe feeling also frustrated? And do you think it's something that happens in, in any country? I mean, do you think just generally the youth are want want things to be better? That's why society normally improves. And and so this conversation could transcend to in fact any country and and anyone. Or, yes.
0: I think generally young people are more impatient and young people would want to see change accelerated and young people kind of see the rate of change and want to accelerate it in all societies. When there is more injustice, when there is more inequality, when there is more poverty and underdevelopment, that level of restlessness kind of continues and accelerates. So if you take the South African context, we are the most unequal country in the world. Hmm. We have huge levels of poverty and underdevelopment. And a huge group of young people are unemployed. That picture lends itself to more restlessness and more unhappiness. And when you don't have enough role models, when you don't have enough people engaging with young people, it's virtually impossible for them Mm. to see any other path than direct confrontation with the authorities and so on. So when people blame a lot of the young people, Mm. I go back to how I I was Mm. and I'd like to engage them. So when we had Fees four, my first reaction was not to condemn the young people, was to try and understand where they were coming from because I was once a student leader and find a way of engaging them. So if you think of corporates today, yeah. Corporates today think of their workforce as being homogeneous, but they are not. A big part of our um, our workforce are millennials, and some of them are some of the same guys that were in the FISMA for. Why do we think they are now going to be blunted because they are in a corporate setting? How do we engage them? And I find those engaging engagements with them fascinating.
1: So, and that comes across. And then, then, I mean, I'm going to say this, that it's, what you're saying is not new. What you're saying is, is we know this, but we're not practicing what we know. That's why it's so great to speak to you. And it's almost like, what are the, there's obviously a routine or something that you do that, that Gives you that chance because I, I don't like. I'm thinking to myself, Wow! And I wrote down, Wow! You know, you've you you're the chairman of Diners Club. Isn't that enough to just stress you out? You're trans you're transforming a your banking sector. Isn't that enough to stress you out? You have a family. You had all these things. There's enough things to stress you out and, and create that focus on your own challenges and own life. So, what do you, what do you do to ground yourself to when you're with these youth, how do you go around? Because that's possibly where someone could, could benefit. I think they know they're meant to do it, but they just they can't get out of that their own little world, possibly.
0: Yeah. I think the, the roles we have are important, yeah. but they're not the b and at all. I think the roles are important as long as they help us towards a goal. My goal is youth development. My goal is is growing the next layer of leaders for the continent, which means, therefore, I have to engage with young people. And when I'm engaging with them, the titles are not there. The status is not there. I'm engaging with them at an equal level. Those uh, older people that engage us, my dad, some of the priests that worked with us, some of the older people who came from Robben Island, they never look down on us. They were not condescending to us. They were not looking to show us how wrong we were. They listened. They tried to understand from where we are coming from. And they would listen, give some ideas, listen to our ideas. What would come out of that would be something wonderful. So all the things I'm involved in in the bank, all the mm. things I'm involved in in my community and in broader society, I do that on the basis of just relating to those guys as people who've got something to say and who've got ideas and who have to be listened to. So that level of respect is very important. And treating everybody with respect and dignity, regardless of who they are, sets the right foundation for a meaningful conversation. Once these guys have a sense that you already have an agenda, you already have got preconceived ideas about them, you just the walls just come and you are not able to bend it them.
1: So I mean that that is it, isn't it? It's it's thinking about not you but them and how you can help them, um, which is hard for people to get around. But but you also have a good a great role model in your dad, who did that for you. And I suppose I've got three young children. So one's twenty, one's sixteen, one's thirteen. They're all sort of going up an age group the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I find the hardest thing, genuinely, is telling them what they should and shouldn't do. And in fact, it happened last night. So I was watching some of your stuff. And then in between that, my son said he wants to join a a gaming competition for online gaming. And so my brother was a bit of a gamer. And so I have a bad feeling about this. And I was like, listen, my my one thing is I believe you can do anything, but... I just don't want you to do the gaming thing and so we had a a general chat and my my children basically told me off like i need to be more open-minded and i've got to support my son and it's hard it It is so hard because i
0: really want the best for him but not in that yes it's it's hard yet it's not impossible and i think we put a lot of the obstacles up front instead of engaging with them on what they want to do, and in the con- in the context of the engagement, bring out some of the things that are there. But when we start with our normal biases, it's very difficult, because then they get into defined mode. They get into defined mode. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So I have uh, my eldest daughter is turning 30. My uh, second daughter is 19, and my son is, is going to be turning 15 soon. And they uh, they challenge me every day because their way of thinking is very different. So if I pick on my son, um, I come from a rugby and a cricket uh, family where traditions where your father had to teach you the game and all of that. And then my son wanted to play basketball. My immediate reaction was what I saw as the culture in basketball. And I took the worst part of that culture in basketball. Yeah. But the guy was very clear he wants to play basketball, yeah. and uh, to reflect then that when I was younger, my dad never wanted me to play football, oh. and when I got to university, I dumped all the other sports and I played football <laughs> <laughs> so it was a negotiation to understand what it is my my son wants, and now he's pursuing that my 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 daughter wanted to be in the arts. And, and she was also thinking of law and I was really liking the legal part, but in the <laughs> end, she wanted to do the arts and drama and I have to understand that. So yes, all of us, it's not easy, but it, it's constantly fighting with our natural response, which is, we know this way. And the last point I'll, I'll make on this is we also have a picture of how we grew up. Mm. So we grew up and we would play with a group of kids, whether it's on a farm or it's in a village or a township or a suburb. It doesn't matter. You had a group of people you played with. So mm. when you say to your kid, leave the computer and go and play outside with other kids because you want to play with more people. Mm. In your mind, you've got a frame of reference of 10 or 12 guys that mm. are in a street or, or environment. But in that very computer, he's playing with 50, 100 or 150 people from all over the world. My line of reference was the 10 guys that I was playing with in the street. And I thought, that's good for the outdoors. But his world is different. He hasn't been exposed to that. His first exposure is to what technology gives him. And, and, And so we are challenging ourselves. In how we think about
1: those things, for sure. But
0: I mean, I mean, you grew up
1: with a, a like you said, a special group of people. I mean, I, I did a podcast with Fenech and, and and she said it's the golden era. Um, yes. And in Fundo as well, um, I spoke to him, and, and it yes. seems that it seems like this amazing. I don't know. Just speaking to you and them as well, it's like it's, uh, I don't know. What, what's the word? It's such integrity. Um, you seem like you have fun. I mean, one of the things you said before is you're the same person at work as you're at home and with your friends. And I don't know if I am that same person to be fair, because I struggle sometimes, probably when things don't go right at work, I take it maybe more serious than at home if things don't go right, I'm a little bit easier. So how how do you, how do I mean, because you're in a quite a serious, there's a lot more pressure on you than at home or in other environments. Mm. Um, how, how do you, how do you, get, you know, be that true you? Um,
0: did, did, it, did it take a lot of work? Yeah, it took a lot of work. I think I made, I made this commitment uh, to myself. And my dad and I used to have these discussions about him at work and about him at home. And my father used to have this sense of the importance of bringing yourself to work so that people see you in the fullness of you and to being authentic and not to be a replica of somebody else. So I've watched uh, a lot of people, painfully watching a lot of good people walk into a corporate and put on a corporate mask Mm -hmm. because that's how they are meant to succeed and do and say a lot of things because that is what is perceived as the route to success. Mm -hmm. But because I was brought up in a particular way, i was always holding on to who i am i speak the same way i speak when i'm with my friends or in the boardroom i'm just a normal person with my kids with my friends i just bring myself to that environment yes you've got modifications that you can make obviously if i'm addressing international visitors or i'm going overseas and i'm talking to colleagues uh, overseas you know it might slightly different but generally the person that they must uh, take is me. The person that they must relate to is the authentic me. And where I've tested that is whenever I've related to people, even outside the country, those bonds are deeper because those people know me for who I am. Mm. So even when I, I, I went to Harvard, uh, and I was asked by my class, and my class was people were CEOs of large companies, and we'd spent about, you know, 10 weeks or whatever together in an A.M.P. class. At the end, they choose the class speaker. And the people choose you as who you are. They didn't choose me the way I acted over the 10 weeks. Yeah. And that meant so much to me. It reinforced what my father told me, that I must bring myself to any situation and not think that I'm not good enough and this is not right and whatever. And I try and be a replica of somebody else. And that for me is, is quite deep. And I want the same for my kids and for other people that I mentor, that I guide. And I try and get them to be themselves. And of yeah. course, it, you will not always be accepted there are times where there is bigotry there's times where there's discrimination but the easiest is to try and conform but then you lose so much you lose who you are and sometimes you might not even belong even after you've done that so rather be yourself
1: and and i mean um you're right though i mean it's very unusual to have that way of thinking because i came across it maybe 10 years ago maybe eight years ago and it certainly wasn't taught to me um i I think my my father was just that way but it wasn't sort of reinforced and i only realized probably eight years ago and it was when i took over the company from him then i realized hold a second a quarter of the staff moved away when he retired and then i realized oh sugar well i can't really replicate what he does he he's unique he's my dad and we look the same but we're two different completely different people i realized that i had to be ralph Yes. And that was one of the best lessons and actually gave me so much confidence to know who I am and what I'm about. So I think getting to know yourself is a big, big thing. But I mean, you've been with Standard Bank now for 19 years. I mean, next year it's 20. Um, I've been married for just, it just turned 21 years. So, I mean, that's a long time. And And in our day and time, most careers with organizations are between two and five years. So that's an enormous amount of time and dedication. And I suppose there's work from both sides. What do you think creates a relationship where you both benefit? What, what what do you think the habits or the the principles for making a
0: relationship like that work for so long? Yeah. I think the first thing is I fell in love with the people at Stanleback. Just amazing human beings across uh, all nine provinces, across the different countries where I've worked. I found these wonderful human beings that I see as part of my family, an extension of my family. And even some of the people who've left the bank who are retired, if I meet them or I talk to them, there is that thing about them that I so, so love. Secondly, i fell in love with its vision for this continent. Uh, it gave me an opportunity to work on this continent when it was not fashionable to do so. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted. And I've always wanted to play a role in, in, in Africa's growth. And that was a big, big opportunity. Mm-hmm. The third one is the leadership. I mm-hmm. think I've been blessed to work in an environment where we're iconic leaders, like mm-hmm. the Jacob of this world, the Ben Kruger, the Sim Chavalalas, the Peter Slebusch, you know, Craig Bond, uh, Daryl Osmond, Royal Ross. So these are people I've worked for. And if I'd be given an opportunity to work with them again, I would. Mm -hmm. And so I've always said to myself, I've never had a bad boss. Why would I want to be a bad boss? It makes no sense. The last thing is growth and challenges. In the 19 years, they've given me many new challenges all the time. Every time I think I'm now understanding what I'm trying to do, top of my game, then they come and say, Okay, now I want you to give you a new challenge. And you're walking there off and you're like, Oh my word, I don't know where, where to start. And in the first few weeks, it's like going Wimbledon, you're doing this. Yeah. I don't know, new acronyms. But you get in, you immerse yourself, and you learn. And when you think you are over that, they come and say, here's another talent. So when I think of the 19 years, it's been such different roles in different capacities uh, to get to the role, I mean, now, uh, you know, of running card and payments for, for the group. It's been a, 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 an amazing journey. And I have been exposed to different parts of the bank and in different disciplines. So that by the time you get to the most senior levels, you are much more rounded uh, than simply just saying, I just want to do this and I'm not learning, but I want to get to the top.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I know that youth development your your big thing. And obviously you've had a great career. And, and, and like you said, you've been um, given huge accountability and responsibility from a young age, really. Um, And Africa obviously has a young nation that we really need to find a way how we empower the young and sort of um, when I think about entrepreneurs globally and I I look at the biggest companies, they're normally tech companies, I think I saw a report that the top tech companies in the States, their market value outstrips the whole of the European stock exchange. So these are really big influences and each one without doubt was started by a very young sometimes not even graduating executive who had no business experience. So the world globally has been driven by essentially young, inexperienced technical people. And so, you know, I look at that and I say, why aren't we empowering? You've had that opportunity. I've had the opportunity. How do we, how do we give more opportunities, to younger people, how do we develop them quicker? Because I think when I was like 21, 22, I'd imagine I was the same as you. I felt like I was invincible, like... Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. How, how do you feel that we do that? Is, is there a... Do you think there's a, like a, a platform of developing this young talent? Do you think there's a, there's a way of doing a recipe for bringing success to them?
0: Yeah, th- there's not enough. There's not enough. But certainly those leaders, who have given young people opportunities really have not been disadvantaged. They've seen growth and they've seen development through that. I mean, I still remember uh, being asked by a minister, uh, the Minister of Education in 1994, to be his uh, speechwriter, spokesperson, communications director, advisor, you name it. I mean, Professor Bengu didn't know me from a power of soul. I was recommended by others that I would work with him. And I learned so much from him. Then there was a guy, Bob Tucker, who was starting a job as the CEO of the banking association. He gave me an opportunity. I knew nothing about banking and I was going to learn. So, so all of these mean, if you give people opportunities and the guidance and all of that, they are able to come to the fore. So in my career, I've given countless numbers of young people opportunities. And the normal retort is, are you sure they're not ready? It will not work out. Those people today are shining throughout. They are doing amazing jobs because the talent was there. Uh, You know, I watch sometimes the idols. If I had my way, I would create an idol for entrepreneurship. Ooh, I like that. Think think of the cues of people who stand for hours on end for five minutes of an opportunity to sing. I'm not knocking that. That's the the creative side. Now imagine if we did exactly the same thing at a massive scale across the continent young people who are able to solve some of Africa's intractable problems. Our intractable problems, whether on health, housing, uh, water, and so on, are not going to be solved by more slogans. They're not going to be solved by more militants. They're going to be solved by some of the best minds, the new innovative solutions, the more creative partnerships. We have some young people who can design the next app that will solve this problem the next platform that will solve this problem i've seen it in my own business one time i was sitting and i was welcoming new graduates and i asked them to to meet for our, for lunch and i met them for lunch at the end of the lunch i said to them you know welcome to our team welcome to our area and uh, and i said you know there's nothing for free. I said, I invited you to this lunch because I wanted to find out why didn't you bank with us when you were students at Varsity? Oh, my God, they said some unbringable things about our products. Then I said, okay, can you come with a product that you would use if you were a student? My job is to make sure that I I remove all obstacles and I give you the funding, make it happen. These youngsters went out there and they came out with a lifestyle app, with a little bit of banking embedded in the team. Mm -hmm. What we would have done, would have to start with a banking app and then try and wrap lifestyle things. These kids got it. Mm -hmm. Many years later, our bank and many other banks are talking about platforms. They're talking about lifestyle apps. Those kids got it. So there are many, many, uh, you know, young people sitting in organizations who have got great ideas, but they are not percolating through the hierarchy. And there are those young people who are not employed that we need to find opportunities to hear their story and hear what they uh, can come up
1: with. The the best idea I heard about young people, I went to an international media summit, and the CEO of CNN at the time said Mm -hmm. that their biggest challenge was actually culture changing the culture to this digital. And he said what he did is he, he found people under 21 in his organization and he created like a, almost like a movement with them where he met once a month. And all he did was he asked them for ideas how to change the business. <laughs> and they helped change and transition CNN um, from the young people because they've got the ideas. this it relevant now. But I I just want to say this because I also feel, Lincoln, that it's one thing from a leader to look at the opportunities, but I also feel there's an obligation for the young person to Mm -hmm. embrace these opportunities. And Mm -hmm. again, like you said, nothing's for free. So, like you ask them for something, they're getting something from you. But I mean, you got these opportunities as a speechwriter. You got these opportunities with the Banking Association. And it wasn't just because you're a nice guy, good looking, and all that sort of stuff and where, where you came from. It was because you also had certain traits and certain behaviors, principles, and habits. What, what, what are those that you look for? Yeah. Because obviously, the experience isn't what you're looking for because you yeah. know,
0: yes.
1: come. Yes. But what are the things that you are looking for for those? Young people, so that they know what attributes they should be focusing on.
0: Yeah, I think an inquisitive mind is very important. A questioning mind is very important when I look at young people. The second one is proactiveness. I want someone who's proactive. Uh, third one is resilience because the cards, you can be dealt many cards, some of them very difficult cards. It's how resilient you are, it's hard work. Hard work, hard work is very important. And then teamwork, somebody who can work within a team and reach out to others is very important. And the last one is you've got to find people who are looking for solutions. Solutions orientation is very important. Um, so, so I always look at those kinds of things uh, when I meet uh, people. I remember one of the things we did Many years back, I started with a few group of, of colleagues at um, the Learnership Program for Standard Bank. This is probably 12 years ago uh, with an amazing uh, colleague, Meymouna Ismail. And we started this Learnership, but we said, we're not going to do it because there is a requirement. We're looking for young people. Who come Mm. from the most impoverished backgrounds Mm. but they've got something in them there's a spark somewhere Mm. many of those young people are now managers Mm. they are now regional managers they've grown their families they've got all of that because we found the spark even when we went to the graduate programs we said guys don't limit yourself only to uct and birds and, and roads and and, and, and Natal and all of that. There are other universities. Even in those universities, there's a guy there who's gone through the worst mm. to get to that class, and they succeeded in spite of everything. That's that guy who's got something. So you've got to look for that kind of thing when you're looking at, at people. Yeah.
1: And, and I mean, I think you're right, because I mean, my dad left school when he was 15 and we spoke about this a little bit earlier. And you were an activist and, and so you, you got channeled in the right way, but you had the energy to take on things. And all he did is reassess that energy. And, and I often think of young children who maybe are troublemakers. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones who are getting suspended or the naughty ones in class getting chucked out of class. Maybe it's attention seeking. I don't know. But they're seeing something different. They're seeing that what they're seeing is that things could change and they're acting out in possibly the wrong way. But I feel like properly, I think we should be looking for all those expelled kids and putting them in entrepreneur school because Mm -hmm. they've clearly got some. Some get up and go to do something. It's just being channeled in the wrong way, and and the problem is if we don't embrace them in the right way, I fear that they're going to be the, either great entrepreneurs or good criminals. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. I I think I think that the way we look at people, we are quick to write them off if they don't fit into you know that box. They don't yeah. tick all the boxes, so. Yeah. If I think I was expelled at high school, years later, I could go to that same high school and now be talking to matriculants and now become a contributor to the school and make sure that I I help the school to succeed. Uh, When I was at varsity, I had a suspended expulsion at varsity because my naughtiness continued. But later, that same university could invite me and give me an award for leadership. So it's not, it's not where somebody is at that particular point in time. Can we help people see something more about them? There are also underlying things sometimes that people find yeah. where there's not enough support, there's not enough guidance, and so on. Yeah. Embracing the full person allows us sometimes to see some amazing things in them. In my career, I've got a lot of people who were written off. Uh, and people thought they couldn't succeed. And just by listening to them, engaging them, challenging them, calling them to terms, because uh, although I love people, I'm very stern about what needs to be done. I'm very stern about excellence, about professionalism, about delivery, all of those things. So I've had people where I'll call them in your room, have a discussion and say, this is unacceptable. This has to change. And just like that, some of them would change. And so I think that our orientation must not be just looking at all the kids that will go to school and got A results in everything and then go to university and, then, and think that that's the only path. It's a legitimate path. But there are other paths that other kids, other kids might drop out of school but may become an entrepreneur. Other colleagues I worked with did not have a degree. And people would say to me, what's and so's qualification i said, I don't know. But the point is I was looking at the full person and what they bring to the party. And also, how do we get a good mix? Some of the youngsters I, 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 I championed, I asked all the guys to look after them. I asked all the guys to guide them. Uh, I mean, one of the the things one day I'll, I'll, I'll write about is the change we had to do in the branch network in South Africa. You think about running all of Standard Bank's branches and you needed to to change the demographics of the branch network over time. The people that were branch managers were mainly white and mainly male, obviously they were women as well. But working with them, we're able to groom young leaders coming through And within a short space of time, those guys were imparting skills to those young guys. Many of those managers today have such pride in looking at the people that they grouped. And so I think that that combination of helping people, identifying talent, and then those people that are going a bit way wide guide them in making sure that they are, you know, having the right advice and they are focusing on the right thing.
1: So yeah, thanks for that. I mean, you, you mentioned about the entrepreneur and, and having the, the sort of the talent program for entrepreneurs. And I kind of feel exactly the same, that we could, we've got to put more focus on entrepreneurs, certainly on the continent. I think it's a, a recipe for opportunities. One of the things I saw is from a school perspective, when these young children start doing these fairs and they have to make things and sell things, <laughs> I was thinking, how do we accelerate... That, because it's not when they leave school, I feel like it's too late. We need to bring this in when they're at school, junior school, not just high school. Um, get them to make things, bake things, even buy things cheap and sell it broken up. Like the, 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 the role of selling an entrepreneurship. What, what are your thoughts on, on,
0: on driving more entrepreneurship in schools? I, I, I'm fully for that. Because I think the old paradigm of our education still persists that you have the core of the school are those kids that go to the academic stream, and science, and technology. Those are the real kids. Everybody focuses on those kids. Then you have the general kids, history, geography, biology, Ah, well, everybody focus on them, but not too long. But the point is, and everybody's focusing on them, getting into one thing called matric yeah. at the end of 12 years. Yeah. And from there, they must go to university. Yeah. I said this linear uh, view is outdated. Yeah. I think that, to your point, getting more people seeing other ways and other streams yeah. and the entrepreneurial stream is very important at a young age. And again, I go back to this thing about what is an entrepreneur? Mm. Actually, if you just really take out all of the fancy stuff, it's somebody who sees a problem Mm. and tries to solve it through a product or a service. Or Mm. somebody who sees an opportunity of something that's not well served and they can serve it well. Or somebody who sees a product that they think is inferior or defective and they think they can come with a better product. Just generally. Now, if you think that we are a country that has got so many problems and so many challenges, we should be encouraging more solution orientation among our kids to resolve many of these problems rather than them reading a book and regurgitating the book, but even solve the problem. So if we found that and then we give through gaming theory, a sense that they've got some benefits. And that benefit might be points or a bit of money or seed capital or whatever. And we're starting to be in a very different stream. If we were to do that, by the time some of these kids finish matric, yeah, they would have businesses. Yeah. And the business you- doesn't have to be big. A business doesn't have to be in, a, in an office. And COVID-19 has shown us that. Yeah. You know, a business can be anywhere. And I think we should be encouraging young people. But because the dominant theory is still A-type kids and they're going to uh, universities, we as parents yeah. do not encourage our kids to be entrepreneurs. The teachers don't. And yeah. the curriculum doesn't. Yeah. And, and this is a disservice to what we need.
1: I think the T-bits are changing that a little bit, but even yes. like I see in Europe, I see in Australia, I see in many countries, 16 years old, a lot of kids are getting tradesmen, becoming tradesmen, and essentially they're entrepreneurs. They're local tradesmen who, who are working the areas—plumbers, electricians, those sorts of things—and and some of them are highly, highly paid individuals. Yes. So there's that. We, we we both share a common, um, I don't know, passion, and that's gender empowerment. Um, and you write a lot of posts about it. Um, you know, Standard Bank partners us on uh, the Top Woman Awards and conferences. So, I, I mean, what what drove that passion for you? I mean, I, I know it's a youth empowerment, woman empowerment; those are big things. Do you think it's because you had daughters? Do you think it came from from that and bringing up daughters, or was it, or did it come from before then?
0: No, it came before then. I think there are three main influences. The, the first influence was certainly the women that brought me up, my mom and my grandmothers. They were very strong women yeah. who had a voice, and they articulated that voice, and they brought us up in a particular way. Then my dad, I think my dad was ahead of his time. Just mm. in the way he saw the world, the way to my mom, the way he would ask us to think about gender issues. And the third one was when we were student activists, the political environment lent itself to thinking of women as being on par with us. So therefore, those early teachings were there. So when I had my first opportunity uh, at a leadership level, um, probably 19 years ago, uh, in Zimbabwe, to make the first appointment of a CEO to run our business in Zimbabwe. And that appointment was a female, Pindinyandoro, who's now uh, been with Standard Bank for all those years. She's now a regional C- CEO running about nine different countries. And in Zimbab- in Zambia, there was a, uh, I'd gone to Zambia, I was responsible for that country, and the exco came to fetch me at the airport. And there were 10 men. And I was like, any women? <laughs> and then we had to, uh, you know, work with uh, the team and identified uh, uh, amazing young uh, women and gave them uh, big responsibilities in the bank. Some of them now are running big businesses all over the world, uh, like Yande uh like Gwen Moaba, all of these people. Uh, so, so I carried on that tradition from uh, you know what I did in, in Zimbabwe in 2001 and I've con- continued that, that uh, tradition in all businesses where I am. There must yeah. be diversity, there yeah. must be inclusion, but most yeah. importantly, there must be a sense of belonging. Yeah. So it's not ticked the box that we've got women in our team. How do they feel? Do they have a sense of belonging? And that's very important for me.
1: But it seems like you—you you just said it. But it's not about ticking boxes. But for me, it's like you're so very clear that it's got, you know. You mentioned diversity and inclusion, and they—they they almost sound like buzzwords. But for me, I don't get that sense from you at all. I get this sense like you—you you have a, a deeper belief that women add more value when they're involved in the organisation. And certainly, I do
0: feel that. I, I, because think about it, sorry, I mean think about it. If you if you're gonna exclude fifty percent of your population, how are you gonna get anything right? If you're excluding sometimes sixty percent of your customer base in decision making, how are you gonna get it right? Right? Yeah. It doesn't it makes no sense. It doesn't yeah. make sense from a commercial point of view, it makes no sense just from an ideological point of view and from just your own value system. Yeah. It says bring as diverse a team as you can get. You then have the breadth of ideas, you have different experiences, and all of it comes to the fore. We now look at COVID-19. Who are the top leaders in the world who've made the biggest difference in their countries? They are women. You go to Germany, you go to New Zealand, uh, you, you see the women that are there, they've made a big difference. And, and so it happens in our, in our organizations as well.
1: Right, and let's just go back to your fundamental belief system, which is when you meet someone, a youth, and probably, probably women as well, that you put yourself and you listen to them. You put them, yourself in their shoes you understand them. And, and, and essentially that's empathy. And I think women have got it in bucket loads and probably why you're successful and why they're successful is because other people know that they, I'm going to swear here, but, but give a shit that they care, yes. that so, so they're going to follow someone who cares about them. I think this is, this is actually what life is really about. If, if you think I care about them, you're going to care possibly about me a little bit more and we're going to have a, a far more of a win-win type if relationship.
0: And in fact, think about it. If you get to know people, you can then empathize with their genes and what goes on even in their personal lives. Now imagine you say, okay, I'm a manager. I have got women in my team. All right, great, tick the box. <laughs> One of those women gets, is, is involved in a messy divorce. What do you do now? Do you now run away and say, let's see you after the divorce? They get a miscarriage. They can't have children when they want to have a child. Somebody is in an abusive relationship or they have a child with disabilities. This is part of their life. Why do you think that you can only deal with those colleagues at the end of that and you cannot journey with them through the difficulties? Working with these hundreds of, 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 of women colleagues all these years has taught me those things because I've had to get involved in their lives and understand what goes on in their lives and then be there and be supportive. At the end of that journey, what do you think the relationship is like? It's more stronger because they've taught me empathy. I understood empathy from them. And then I get to have more empathy for others. And that's what their biggest benefit is when you have a diverse team you learn from all of them and you understand and they and, and they challenge us i mean i remember some of the challenges i used to get uh, and we would have meetings at 7 30 in the morning and then one day um i, I was running the south african uh, channels then for for the bank and then one of the colleagues said lincoln this 7 30 doesn't work for us." We don't have wives. <laughs> Just a, bit. Just a bit. Made me understand this is not going to work. <laughs> they have our meetings at 8 hours, 8, because we want to go drop off our kids. So all these things are important. I think my relationship with my wife and my two daughters also helps yeah. Because I also hear from them when they think that there are certain uh, biases I have. There are certain words are used that they think are unacceptable. All of that is a journey of learning. I mean, leadership is lifelong learning. You yeah. have to keep on learning. Are you going to make mistakes? Of course, you're going to make mistakes. But are you learning from those mistakes to become a better human being and therefore a better leader? Is the key question. So, I mean, there's a whole
1: lot of data that supports what you're saying as well. I mean, it, you know. Um, organizations that without women in senior executive positions generally perform about 2% worse in terms of return on equity um, women are better with money better investors of money um, generally over a, a, a long period I think I think the, the stats was that they're less emotional which I thought was very funny because we, we the bias is they're more emotional but in investing, they're less emotional. So men normally will react quickly to a down market. Women will normally stabilize and look to the long term. And so they actually outperform men. We lose money in the down markets. And so you have all this data. And then in the States, the fastest growing and the most organizations, new growth organizations, is African-American entrepreneurs are the fastest women entrepreneurs. African-American women entrepreneurs are taking on the States. And I think of Africa and the excitement that's coming, that we're seeing, like we do posts on women and the support they get from each other is frightening, right? It's really, you can feel this groundswell of black women entrepreneurs coming through in not just South Africa, but the whole of Africa. I mean, are you
0: you seeing that as well? I'm seeing that. I'm seeing that as I travel the length and breadth of this continent I see women entrepreneurs under the most difficult conditions still succeeding. I see young women leaders and young women working uh, who have got big goals. And these young people are driven. They are passionate. They don't have a sense that we will achieve that in five years. They are working for tomorrow doing tomorrow and succeeding tomorrow. I look at my own daughter, Uh, she's a young professional in one of the the leading banks, her view of what she has to achieve, she's pushing herself uh, to succeed. What what they want is a supportive environment, a supportive Mm -hmm. environment that allows women to thrive, Mm -hmm. a supportive environment that doesn't give women a false choice between being a wonderful mom and a wonderful professional, or being a wonderful wife and a wonderful professional. Women can make those trade-offs themselves. They don't need analytic, uh, you know, advice in there. So I think it's that what is needed. If we can create that, if I look at the girl child now, succeeding more in high school, if I look at young girls at universities sus- succeeding now more than young men, that tells you that if our businesses and our corporates are not welcoming for that voice of women, they are robbing themselves of huge nuggets of uh, you know intellect and, uh, and, 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 and and innovation.
1: I think some, some universities in the states now sixty almost seventy percent um, admissions are women and yeah. and so you know, if you're not adopting that mindset um you're going to be in problems so one of the other things that we're seeing is obviously we've had some challenges we've got a little bit of you know challenges with corruption we've had the recession but and we're having a lot of skilled people in south africa sort of leaving not seeing opportunities possibly and, and going wherever like australia the uk america all those sorts of places but yet we've got these young up and coming people how do we keep them here how do we how do we keep them here? Because our future really relies also on them staying and creating a future for us. You know, I think we're doing a huge amount investing in education, we're improving systems, but it doesn't help educating them and making them resilient and giving them all these skills and then everybody else benefiting. Yeah. How
0: do you see the future of us holding it's on a, to our it's, Yeah, it's a huge leadership challenge. Uh, I learned many years ago that talent doesn't fight it flees. (laughs) Talent doesn't fight, it flees. So unless you understand how to put your arms around talented people, resourceful people, you will lose. Mm -hmm. So there's a leadership challenge we have to get a lot of the best brains we have, the best innovative people we have, the best resourceful people we have, and the people with a lot of uh, wealth as well mm-hmm. to get them to be part of the gene, to mm-hmm. see themselves as part of the leadership future we are trying uh, to create. Mm-hmm. Shouting at them doesn't help. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, degrading them doesn't help. Uh, abusing them doesn't help. Because what other countries are doing is to say, "Come, welcome. We will we will use your skills." So there's a, way, there's a way of talking and engaging with people in any environment. I find that in my own work, there's a way of reaching out to the people I work with, even when they've done something wrong, where I don't make them lose face. I don't demean them. I don't make them to feel, I don't belittle them. But I find a way of engaging with them and bring them to be part of a solution. Even those that may that may not immediately see a benefit, or those that may have to sacrifice something, there is a way of engaging them and talking to them and to make them see why they need to play a role in doing so. Now I know these days, it's not fashionable for many people to think about that golden age of, Oliver Tambo, Walter Susulu, Govan Becky, Nelson Mandela, and so on. But those guys had the foresight to see way beyond and try and create a society and use everybody to be part of that and bring everybody's skills, everybody's contribution to build something like that. That is what is missing in our discourse as leaders. And what makes it like that is that many leaders depend on their constituency for support. So if I am seen as militant, so people will vote for me or choose me because I'm militant. Yeah. But I may be saying the wrong things or doing the wrong things, but if I now try and have a balance way, I lose support. Mm. I don't think that is sustainable. Mm. I think that reaching out, building more coalitions, building more partnerships, allaying people's fears, and finding a way of making sure that all of us in our spheres of influence are mm. able to have these conversations. Like a what conversations am I having with my kids about South Africa with all of its problems and challenges? Yeah. How can I talk to them to see that there is hope in this country? How yeah. do I talk to them to see that there is a, an opportunity for their skills uh, to be utilized in this country? When I'm doing that, I can't lie and say there's no corruption. There's lots of corruption. I can't lie and say there's no crime. There's a lot of crime. I cannot lie and say there's no cronyism and nepotism. Those things exist, yeah. but I have to find a way of showing them where those things are at. I, I'll, I'll conclude at this point by talking about a conversation I had uh, just last year with a couple of very senior business people. We had a a dinner and, and the entire conversation was how rotten the country is, going to the dogs and it's useless. I don't know why we should still be here and so on. Then I just asked a couple of questions and I said, okay, guys, there are people going to bet for South Africa in the international market today. Would you want to change their script and use your script? They're like, of course not. You can't can't say that. I mean, that will affect our businesses. (laughs) So you've taken the worst and all you're painting is the worst. I'm saying paint a balanced picture. Mm. And try and find, I said, you guys are running successful businesses in spite of these difficulties. Mm. That's the same message that you're saying to investors. Come and invest in South Africa. There are opportunities in spite of the challenges that we have. Mm. So when they had agreed, then I said, okay, what conversation do we have with your children? Mm. I said, again, if all you say around the table is everything here is rotten, why do you think when your child finishes, the first thing they want you to know is not going to be me? leave, it. So it's, it's this balanced conversation we must have uh, all the time. So even the organization where I work, I've been there for 19 years. There mm-hmm. are times when I'm so upset with the organization. There are some times where I'm so upset with the leaders. But it's in balance. Mm-hmm. Overall, it's a great institution. These are great leaders. But I will challenge them on the things I don't like and be very specific. And if I've got some suggestions, I'll come with the suggestions. But to just simply rubbish everything, I don't think for me is constructive. So we need leaders to have these conversations with people. Uh, Old Man Matiba used to reach out to many people. I see some of that now with uh, President Ramaphosa. There's been a lot of businesses who have contributed during this COVID-19. Many people are not talking about how many of the wealthy people in this country are giving so much of what they have for people who have less. So many people are contributing their own money into the 33% that the president wanted us to give. So, so we need that story also told so that the only story is not the negativity. And I guess that would be the answer.
1: I mean, when I watched and I was doing my research on you yesterday, and it's come through again now today, It's just, I, I, I found myself watching a video straight afterwards on the seven habits of highly effective people. And I don't know, you, you have all those principles down. Like, it's amazing. Like, I don't know how you do it. But the one thing that I was looking at is, and you talked yesterday as well about, like, the balance. And so, you know, balanced view, but also balanced life. And then early on, you said one of your principles is hard work. And I suppose one of the things that possibly many young women and, you know, entrepreneurs and young people sort of grapple with is that word hard work, because a lot of them, you know, are ambitious. And so sometimes you run yourself into, you know, a stop essentially. And I'm sure it's happened in your career. It certainly happened in mine. And so how do we, how do we create that balance? Because I agree with you, like hard work is, the cornerstone of achievement you know if you don't put in the hardwood yards you're not going to reach it but at the same time there's no point in blowing yourself out because it's a long race
0: you need to be sustainable yeah. how, how what's your advice so for I, hard I, work? Learned, I learned yeah so i learned the hard way uh, i had the theory i had all of the nice words but when it came to the crunch i preferred my work and I didn't balance my life. And when I found myself at at Harvard, Mm -hmm. I had to introspect because Professor Clay Christensen gave us a lecture and his lecture was entitled, How Will You Measure Your Life? Mm -hmm. This was the most profound conversation, as profound as the conversation I had with my dad many years back, and I introspected, and I realized that in spite of everything I said, I was not giving enough time to my health, I was not giving enough time to my wife, I was not giving enough time to my children, I was not giving enough time to my spirituality, and I was not minding my rent and sex. So, so much of my life was not in balance. My finances were not in balance. My spirituality was not in balance. My relationship with my kids and my, my wife was not in balance. I was not healthy. So I had to start a journey of reinventing myself. I look back now to that seven, or eight years, and I've learned that lesson. And I now shout from the rooftops to more young people not to fall into the trap I I fell in. Mm. I was lucky that I didn't get bankrupt, lucky I didn't get divorced, lucky that I didn't lose my children, lucky that I didn't get a stroke or Mm. diabetes or any of these things, but it could have happened. Mm. So I say to now, to to young people, work hard, work smart. Mm. Try and find a balanced scorecard. So that balanced scorecard must not just be the success in terms of material things or promotions and all of that, but there must be your family. Yeah. there must be your community. there must be society. So how do you have that balanced scorecard? So when I then gave the graduation speech, um, I wrote towards a more balanced scorecard. And again, I remember that my father was present in my life. So many other people were present in my life. Why would I not be present in the life of my children? And so that was a tough introspection. So all of us will have different balances. All of us will have different um, things to balance and how we do it. But as long as we're conscious of what it means. And when I was talking to my wife after this Damascus uh, experience, and she said to me, yeah, you were stubborn. I need to tell you. <laughs> and the thing is that when you're doing wrong, you rationalize. I mean, she would say to me, you know, uh, I saw Sim Chavalala and Peter Slaibus dropping off their kids. And at that time, I didn't drop off my kids. And I would say, the reason why Peter Slaibus and Sim Chavalala are able to drop off their kids is that people like me who have to do the work. <laughs> but at the time, you rational rationalized. Yeah. But... I had I had to change, I had to change my diet uh, because if I was going to continue on a highly stressful job, lots of traveling, lots of stress, but I'm eating junk, I'm not exercising, yeah. something was going to give. So I now am a big proponent of that. And I use my own example to show kids and young leaders that there is an alternative.
1: I had a similar experience. I also did something similar. And I just, I wrote a book about what my main goal was and then all the other goals, family, health, lifestyle, learning, travel, all those things. It's important, right? Because sometimes I think we yeah. get fixed yeah. on a career or a target, a goal a success. And we don't realise what, and, and one of the best books I've read was um, Think and Grow Rich, which is you have to give up something to get something. So what are you prepared to give up? And And there's some things you shouldn't give up. And health, family, Mm. friends—those are probably the things, material things you can give up rather. Mm. Um, But it's been amazing to talk to you.
0: (laughs) Thank you you so much.
1: Um, And and I think we've got so much from you. It's it's been ridiculous. So hopefully we see you soon at our top woman um, conference next month on the the first and second of October. You guys yeah, have put so much work into it. It's, it's <laughs> great supporting us, and I must thank you again because um, you've been a great supporter of us and the Top Woman program. Yeah. It's been unbelievable, and you've been so helpful to me personally as well. So thank you so much. Thanks, really so appreciate
0: hard. it. Good luck, eh.